Welcome to the Washed Up Journalist Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Why capture your legacy? As each generation passes, your collection of memories will gain in value to your family. It's about telling your heirs who you are and where you came from, what you believe and why. It's not just your legacy, it's their history. Legacy Preservation. We write history, yours. My guest today on Washed Up Journalists is Steve Jordan, a longtime business reporter known for his in-depth coverage of legendary investor Warren Buffett. Jordan's first newspaper byline ran in the summer of 1967, when he was just a student intern, and he continued at the same daily newspaper until his last column in 2018. In that time, his news stories led to nearly 15,000 bylines in the Omaha World-Herald. 475 of those came under Warren Watch, a column he wrote about Buffett, which began in 2008 to explore the goings-on of Buffett and his world-famous Berkshire Hathaway. In 2013, Jordan authored The Oracle in Omaha, How Warren Buffett and His Hometown Shaped Each Other, his first and thus far only book. Steve Jordan, welcome to Washed Up Journalists. Hello, how are you doing? Doing well. Did I get the record mostly right there? I think you're right. I think you're right. So I asked a few mutual friends of ours if there's any dirt on Steve Jordan, and you must be a pretty straight-laced guy because they only came up with two things. One, you played in a marching band, and two, you're tall. Yeah, well, yeah. Right, still playing. Uh, uh, my, my wife and I have played in music groups the whole time. So, And you're still tall. You're, what, 6'4"? Yeah, they're almost. Did that ever come in handy or not in handy during your reporting days? Uh, you know, I, I think it, in some cases it's not handy to be sticking out like that. You know, you, you, you're sort of more obvious maybe. I, I remember doing a story on immigration with another reporter, and, and uh, they figured I was with the government. Because <laughs> I was wearing a tie, I guess, and too tall. So it doesn't always work in your favor. I, I've, I mean, I guess uh, it's okay to be mistaken for a government employee. That's probably better than some other things you could be mistaken I, for. Yeah, I suppose. But I'm, but I'm the short one in the family. Both my brothers are taller than I am. So, are they really? So I get together with them, and I'm, you know, I feel normal. Did anyone play basketball? Yeah, they were they were basketball players. I, I grew late, but uh, I mean, my older brother – Played in the state tournament here, and my younger brother walked on at Michigan State for a little while. So, oh wow! So he, Accomplished players. Yeah, he could actually play. Um, so, just as an icebreaker, what's the the most surprisingly normal thing about Warren Buffett that that the average person would be surprised by? Uh, you know, I don't know if Omaha people are surprised. You see him around at restaurants uh, here. You know, you walk into a pancake house or something like that, and and he might show up with a friend and. Or he may be sitting at the next table at, at some steakhouse. So he, just normally around Omaha, uh, he's people are always surprised that his house is an ordinary house. I mean, it's a decent neighborhood, better than mine, but it's certainly not a you know the multi-billionaire's mansion like you might find in, in some of these other cities. Uh, it's gotten a little more security-minded, but you know he's he's uh, out there on the street uh, occasionally. Without without any, if there's a public appearance, he'll have some people watching with him. But a lot of times, when it's just him going about his normal daily activities, uh, 
He just looks like any other guy driving a car and walking and whatever. Oh, that's kind of refreshing to hear in today's day and age, I suppose. Yeah, he's got, I mean, here's a perk. He's got a Coke, uh, Coke dispenser at his office. That's pretty doesn't good. have to go out for cans, you know. We need to get one of those here. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a little fountain, a small fountain. So Nice. Well, let's back up. We'll get into the Buffett some more as we go. I'd like to start with how you got into the business. And, and the first question I want to ask is, what was, in the house you grew up in, were your parents big consumers of news? At what age did you kind of become fascinated with the news business? Boy, I... We always had the daily paper, but, you know, everybody had the daily paper. And I, I don't particularly remember my folks reading it, although I'm sure they did. I mean, I remember watching the Nixon-Kennedy uh, debates. I remember watching uh, the Queen Elizabeth's inauguration on TV. I remember watching the moon landing, of course, and some of those historic events. And, uh, I mean, I I was interested in writing or like like to write way back in school. And I think even worked on a yearbook of some kind in junior high and then of course, high school newspaper, high school yearbook, and then right through to college. So it was a pretty steady, uh, pretty steady interest in it. I even got to write a small item for uh, uh, my grandfather's newspaper about about being in a in a in a typhoon when we were stationed on Okinawa. My dad was an Air Force guy, and so we did a little bit of writing like that. I remember my brothers and I, my older brother and I, went on a walk somewhere out in the country and fell in the creek and came in and, you know, had been kind of a mess. And my mom said, well, why don't you write down what you did? And so we wrote down what we did. Well, that was not exactly punishment, but she wanted to be see what was going on with us. And so we could we could write from an early age. And I liked English, liked studying English, and liked the, the idea of communicating things. How about business? Because a lot of your career as a, as a journalist was spent covering business. Was that a natural to you or did you come to it later? Yeah, that was sort of later. I mean, my, my business education was six hours of economics uh, in college. And the, the, the class I remember was a 730 economics class. And the professor wasn't live. He was on some kind of videotape or something like that. And that was, that was a brutal class to sit through and stay awake in. So I... I had a kind of very basic understanding of, of economics. Took a little bit in our high school class, taught it at Bellevue, uh, taught a little bit of economics. But that was one of these things you kind of learn on the job. Uh, uh, the job of uh, business reporter came open, and they, they, I took it on and, and uh, was able to learn from the people that I talked to, I says, as a way to do it. Early in your career, you were on the rewrite desk for at least a time. Is that right? Yeah, everybody took turns at that. I mean, in, in those days, we'd, we'd, uh, we had a rewrite desk and reporters out in the field would call in stuff from the police station or the courthouse or, or whatever. And we'd, we'd type it, uh, particularly for the afternoon paper. We had an afternoon paper in those days. So they would be getting the police calls or something going on with the police. And they would, they would type up a story, call it in, or, or even just, you know, reporters used to be able to call in stories off the top of their heads. Uh, a simple, some kind of simple story, and uh, that way I'd get into the afternoon paper. It was a very, very time, timely thing, and it was a good uh, training ground for young reporters to hear how the veterans called in their stories and, uh, you know, tested your typing skills and all that stuff. So it was a good rite of passage, and we and we moved around to different beats back and forth before making it to business. And tell me some of the beats you were on. I believe you covered police for a while. Is that correct? Yeah, I covered, covered police. That was the early one that people had. I covered court, county government and the courthouse. Uh, 
covered uh, education, public schools. I used to uh, come to this building we're in now and cover the school board meetings. And uh, we, I did higher education. For a while, I was the youth page editor. We had a weekly youth page that, that, uh, that ran. We did stories about what was going on with young people, uh, just various, and then kind of general assignment uh, stuff. I stayed on the news side. I didn't ever go into sports or the feature side, but uh, we 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 just covered whatever there was to cover. And if if you can find a good story and do it, then that's fine. They let you alone and did it. Did any of those beats stand out to you as looking back on it? Do you reflect more fondly on any of those assignments, or do they all kind of mesh together? Ah, uh, well, not, not mesh together. I would say you know very distinct. Uh, divisions of things. You start going to Board of Regents meetings and covering the university's budget and the university activities and what's going on with their expansion plans, that sort of thing. Uh, right after I started covering Omaha Public Schools, uh, desegregation began uh, with busing of kids all over town. And uh, there, were, there were fights on the school board about how that was going to go. And, uh, you know, a very traumatic time for big parts of Omaha. Uh, I was here I was covering police during some of the riots uh, that that took place in the civil rights causes, so it was a interesting time. And Omaha was taking part in, you know, what was national uh, national trends, and we we covered them from the basis of the local people. You alluded uh, briefly to watching some of the veterans kind of work on the fly and how they how they would uh, put together a story. Do you have any particular mentors, as you look back on it now, that really influenced uh, your work as a journalist? Well, there are a whole lot of them. Uh, you know, the uh, education reporter named Larry Parrott preceded me and by some times. Uh, he was a, a just a, a real pro at it. A guy named Bill Bellotti used to be a police reporter, and he, he would, uh, in fact, he still wrote on the side for True Detective magazine. He would write crime stories and wow. that, that sort of stuff. I mean, there were there were guys. Uh, Al Frisbee was a spot reporter, but then he also had a column that he wrote. Uh, the uh, the ideas of uh, you know a lot of these guys were World War II veterans when I was there. In fact, there was a there were a couple fellows who had worked for the Omaha B News, which which closed in 1937. So there was. There were some real old timers uh, around, and you think of it. I mean, I started at the paper in '67. Uh, that was almost 20 years ago after the after uh, World War II ended. Korean War was very fresh in people's minds, and uh, you know, today uh, uh, that seems like ancient history, but it was very real back then. Those there were guys on the newsroom who had been battling. Uh, one of the reporters named Howard Silber had been in in Europe and. Uh, as I understand, was in a infantry unit and ended up in a knife fight with a German soldier and had a had, you know so that life was uh, life was history was really out there for these guys it, it was you know day to the day to day that they lived yeah yeah they were they were history in a sense right you know? um, so how did you uh, get moved into business like talk walk me back and about what time was that era wise yeah about eighteen fifty it seems like <laughs> I know you're not that I've old. Been, it, I, and I, you know, we, we had uh, we had a business staff or a business person really covering a person covering business, and some of our predecessors, Tom Connolly and Roger Lewis, and those guys did a terrific job of covering business. Uh, but they, as time went on, they decided they would make it more of a uh, topic with its own section. So they were adding people, and uh, I was doing it uh, 
alone, and, and then they added a couple people. They hired a business editor. Uh, one of our fellows, uh, and if I guess this guy would be a mentor too, Dave Beter, was a veteran reporter. He'd covered politics. He was in our Washington Bureau, and then he he was uh, came back to the World Herald as business editor and had a staff of four or five. And so uh, I was lucky enough to be part of that group. And then as they grew, Dave uh, retired and uh, another fellow took over, and then they gradually moved, and, and he left. And we ended up uh, naming me business editor. I was business editor for about 10 years. And I kept writing stories, so I, I didn't uh, uh, lose a hand at that. Uh, and we gradually expanded that business. Uh, we, we wanted, since I was still writing and, and doing okay with that, they decided they should have somebody who would just be editing and supervising the reporters, editing the stories, sifting out ideas, all those things that the editors do. And uh, so there was a, an editor and a staff of about seven business reporters and got to work with some terrific people uh, all during those years. And uh, a lot of people came and went, but uh, a lot of them are, are uh, you know, really, good, really good journalists and, and focused on the, the business side of things. And I, it was really a, an evolution of American newspapers that you know, people thought the Wall Street Journal was the only real business newspaper, and there wasn't a lot of business. There wasn't a lot of news in the in the world of business. But you know, people spend I don't know a third or a fourth of their life working, uh, and there's lots of stuff that happens, all sorts of stuff with uh, publicly traded companies and private companies and expansion and going out of business and you know all the things that uh, that happen with business. I decided it's a a really worthwhile topic and a lot of interest in, in reading what goes on with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the watchdog role, again, there is important where you you have a public that uh, deserves to be informed about what's going on in the world of business, and, uh, and that's the function the paper serves, is to, is to keep the community informed about, uh, you know, local and, and regional and national business dealings. Yeah, and it's, and lately has been tougher to do, you know, Newspapers have trimmed down their staffs, and the World Herald is no exception. And, and so there are fewer people covering business topics, which uh, just means you have, you know, you'll cover the, main, the major things, you know, the discussion about TD Ameritrade being bought and some of the deals that, that Buffett works on. And, you know, those, those major things will be continued coverage, but some of the minor things may slide by without, without much attention. Uh, you know, a, a business goes out of... Goes, a company goes out of business, and some people get out of work, and maybe they try, maybe they find something new to do, and it's a little harder to dig out those stories that they're they're still important, but they're maybe not uh, getting the attention that they once did. So in 2008, uh, the World Herald, the Omaha World Herald, decides to start this column focusing on what Warren Buffett's up to, and it's called Warren Watch, and. And you authored it. Whose idea was it originally to start that column? And maybe walk me through the discussions and how long the buildup was to actually just devoting one reporter to covering Mr. Buffett. Well, yeah, it, it was a kind of a joint effort. They were going to redesign the pages a little bit and, and try to come up with something something different, uh, uh, something new. And the uh, my thought, uh, you know, I'd been I'd been covering Buffett for a while. We had a lot of different reporters cover them, including. Bob Doerr was the original reporter who covered uh, covered Buffett. Wrote an article about him that was just uh, had all of the all of his ideas. Of course, he was much smaller in terms of business size in those days. But uh, Bob had had the basics of Warren Buffett down in that first story. And over the years, different reporters had covered him, and I'd been covering him covering him about during that time we did the redesign. Uh, 
my theory was that people would read almost anything about Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, he ties his shoelaces in the middle of the street, and you know, who knows what what the interest of uh, in the guy is. So uh, we kind of watched for a little while and tried to think of things, uh, look at things that would, I would put in the, the column if I did it weekly. Uh, you know, you don't want to run out of ideas. You don't want to run out of things to say if you're starting a regular column. And uh, we found out, you know, there were lots of things that you could put in. And they might not get in ordinarily, but yeah, when you have a column, you can put in small things or short things that uh, are of interest, but they're not worth a major story of some kind. And uh, so when they kicked off the new design, that was one of the features of the design was that Warren Watch column and able to keep it going and never ran out of ideas. I had tried to have at least three different things in every, in every time. And, uh, but then we still did regular news stories about uh, the happenings at Berkshire and uh, all those sorts of things. The column lets you uh, branch out a little bit to some of the personalities, family members, uh, things going on, kind of sidelights, uh, smaller activities that Berkshire was involved in, and uh, more of a personal type uh, coverage than the regular news story. So it was, it was valuable. It was a lot of fun doing and, and uh, uh, got a lot of, I think, good reaction too during the years. When you first made the decision to go with Warren Watch, did you approach Mr. Buffett to um, kind of get his blessing or to ask for access that you ne- not necessarily had before? Or uh, you didn't need to do that. Did you take that step to, to go to him and say, here's what we want to do? No, I can tell you the truth. I don't think he, he probably read it probably saw Warren Watch like everybody else did the first day. I, uh, I, we kept kind of an arm's length uh, relationship with him, just like any other reporter anywhere would. Uh, and that was true even after the, after Berkshire bought the World Herald. You know, we, we kept a, uh, that kind of relationship. It was not um, some sort of inside thing that we took advantage of. And, and he, you know, he, he played it straight as well. I mean, he he wasn't giving me any more access than he did other reporters. Once in a while, I mean, there'd be some old-time friend of his uh, from Omaha who would die or or something like that, some kind of small-town thing that might might happen. He might, uh, you know, I mean, the average reporter from New York City is not going to call him up and talk about a friend of his in Omaha who died. But if we're doing a obituary about the guy, he would send a comment or make a comment about the guy, who he, how they got along, that sort of stuff. Uh, so there was a little bit of that. I did. I managed to get one scoop <laughs> that, that was uh, probably the result of being the hometown newspaper. Uh, I was driving a car and uh, the cell phone rang, and it was Susie Buffett telling me that her father had gotten married. And so I said, "Let me pull over a minute here, and we'll talk." <laughs> so, so we we had that as a scoop. You know, he his wife had passed away some years before, and so he. He remarried, but you know that's that's kind of a hometown hometown thing. I mean, the other guy who was uh, maybe had a little bit of advantage was uh, Charlie Munger. He's from Omaha, although he's been in California for decades, and he has kind of a soft spot, I think, for Omaha. I would I would call him up or send a message uh, on some story that he was involved in, and he would he was very gracious and willing to talk about things, and uh, you know Charlie. If you've ever seen Charlie talk, uh, you can see excerpts of his of their meetings online. He's a, he's a very uh, succinct fellow when, and and very erudite, well spoken, pithy comments. That's uh, that's mm-hmm. Charlie Munger, and he he was willing to maybe give me a 
give me a little bit of extra treatment as a local Omaha reporter. Mm-hmm. So then by virtue of becoming this Warren Buffett expert, you're the boots on the ground in Omaha, right down the street from where Mr. Buffett does business. How, if, if at all, did your career change? Did you start to get any national praise or recognition for your work covering Mr. Buffett? Did you be, I mean, were you treated as a sort of expert in the field of Warren Buffett? Well, it's it's kind of odd. I mean, the I, I would get some speaking invitations, but the 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 most interesting one are in recent years uh, these Chinese groups have started coming to Omaha, and they I, I'm not sure exactly of their background. They're they're uh, it, they call themselves educational uh, groups. They bring people to town to Omaha, and then I think they they go on to New York or they go some other place uh, after the Berkshire meeting. And uh, in the days leading up to the Berkshire meeting, they have conferences with speakers and so forth. And and uh, a, a few of those groups started inviting me to their their uh, gathering, their pre-meeting gatherings. And uh, so I got to let me be on a panel discussion or just give a talk. And they would have translation translators going on in, in the background. Uh, so that was an interesting thing. Uh, there was a course at UNO being taught, uh, and I would... Uh, go take part in one of those uh, one of those evening sessions, uh, course on Buffett and Berkshire that uh, people would take through their business college, and got to spend a couple of those. You know, talk to a few civic groups. Uh, there's always a event chairman looking for somebody to fill in for a month, and I could I could talk a little bit about Warren and and Buffett and uh, Berkshire. So, I. It, on, on the one hand, you, they know a little bit about it, but what they really want to know is what to do with their money, and that's you know <laughs> that's their decision. I don't, uh, I never got into the business of picking stocks or making advice or uh, warning people, except for stories about scams. We would do those and try to prevent people from losing their money, but uh, we never got into investment advice, those sorts of things. We. We'll let somebody who's had more than six hours of economics handle that. I, I would imagine at, at a in a college setting like you described where you're lecturing on, on Warren Buffett and maybe other people lecturing on Warren Buffett are coming at it strictly from an economics perspective, you might offer a totally different angle in terms of capturing the human element of it and maybe the way he communicates to the outside world. Did you feel like you brought something different to the table in that regard because you weren't a business guy by nature? Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit. I I, I would understand. I I, th- I think I understand what the readers wanted to know. I mean, that's one of the things a newspaper person is tries to do is to put yourself in the reader's place and what they would want to know and how how you how to explain things uh, that that the uh, that is going on, whatever is whatever is happening, uh, and how people treat each other, how the how Buffett uh, works and how he. How he manages to uh, put together the company that he's done. Uh, we we the book I wrote uh, was about his relationship with Omaha and the things that happened to him when he was growing up here, uh, the people he knew, the people who influenced him in his early years, and and then of course the when he came back to Omaha, why did he do that, and what's what's he find around Omaha that he likes when he stays here, and then also some of the people who were influenced by him, his Early investors, for instance, have become big philanthropists, and a lot of them focus on Omaha. Uh, Omaha has a focus on, I think, uh, business ethics that's maybe uh, interesting or maybe unique or at least unusual in terms of 
uh, companies and Buffett's reputation was always of being a straight shooter as far as business ethics go. And that's one of the things that I think Omaha was influenced uh, by him. Let's talk about that book a little bit. came out in 2013. How did the idea come about? And, and when I say idea, I mean the angle to explore the relationship between Warren Buffett and his hometown. And, and how long was it in the works before you finally decided, let's, let's green light this and do it? We had, World Held has published books, various books over the years, but uh, Steve Pivovar, who was a sports reporter who covered baseball, among other things, and he had written reams of stories over the years in, about Rosenblatt Stadium. And, of course, Rosenblatt was getting ready to close. And so he told the World Herald, I'm going to write a book about Rosenblatt. If the World Herald wants to publish it, that's fine. But he's going to write it one way or the other. He just had it in him to write that book. And so the World Herald decided, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. That's interesting. It could come out. Uh, it came out during the last session of the College World Series that was held at Rosenblatt. And what that prompted the paper to do was say, well, there's a, this is something we can do. We have... Uh, we have archives, we have photos, we have uh, good people who can write things, we have capacity to edit, put together a books. Uh, so they formed a book division uh, and decided we would go after various kinds of books. And, you know, there's been Nebraska football books and uh, World War II books, Cold War books, uh, books about the zoo, books about Nebraska weather. There's a book about Nebraska counties. Uh, Mike Kelly did one on on Omaha and the things about Omaha that are interesting. So, uh, and early on when they decided to have the book division, one of the books they wanted to do was about Warren Buffett. Uh, so, and I was covering them at the time and they said, you're the logical person to do that. So you start thinking, you start looking at what's been written and there's, I mean, easily there's 500 book titles that have Warren's name in them. All sorts of things that they've written about, uh, you know, what, uh, Warren Buffett's family and Warren Buffett's, how Warren Buffett does things and Warren Buffett's quotes and, you know, all sorts of things that people would write about Buffett. But you, I mean, the old theory is that you write something that you know about. Well, we know about Omaha, we know about Warren Buffett, and you can link those things together into what would be a topic, the, the way each of those two influenced each other, how Warren influenced Omaha, how Omaha has influenced Warren over the years. And so that became the basis of the story. Uh, the, the first, the decision made to do that was made, and then in the, we were doing just a few books a year, so I kind of got on the list of when to write it. And in the, in the meantime, leading up to it, Berkshire Hathaway bought the World Herald. And that kind of changed things a little bit in terms of how the public perception would be, but it didn't really change the plan that we had for the book or the, the approach that I wanted to take. Uh, and so uh, it's in September, the year before that, uh, we, I started working on it. And basically that was my job for about seven months. I did a few things. I kept the Warren Watch column going, and then I did a few stories that uh, but most of my days were spent during those seven months writing, interviewing people, writing that book, doing research in our archive and elsewhere. Uh, and at the start, I wrote to Buffett a letter saying, I'm planning uh, a book about uh, Omaha, you and Omaha, and I would like to have an interview with you about that. And so he wrote back and he agreed to talk with me for an hour, and he recommended waiting till toward the end of the process so that we'd know 
what we wanted to talk about. I mean, he's very protective of his time. He doesn't he doesn't want to spend a lot of time. You know, he doesn't want to waste time. He says it's the the one thing he can't get more of. Right. As we're all in that shape. So I I did that and then uh, interviewed, uh, starting interviewing with the oldest people first. You know, which is what you do in a book. That's yeah, absolutely. Out in the Get them while they're here. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, going through looking up archives of of of, of the all about Berkshire and his family and his, his ancestors, that sort of stuff. Uh, interviewed a lot of people. We took new pictures and we sort of sifted through our files to get uh, historic pictures too. And then interviewed him, I think it was in February, the next February. Uh, and uh, so by then I, I knew sort of chapter by chapter. I mean, he's, he's a guy who's been quoted a lot. He said a lot of things. So a lot of the things that he was talking about Omaha is already on the record, but there were other things I wanted to pursue. And so those were the things we talked about in the interview. And then uh, from February, and then it's interesting because most, a lot of books are published around Christmas time because they figure buy, people are buying books as gifts. Well, the Berkshire book, The Logical Time, was to come out at the Berkshire meeting. So we had it scheduled to come out the first week of May, first weekend of May, and uh, met the deadline and had it published then. And and uh, they they were able to sell the book at the meeting, and then uh, of course it went online and and at the bookstore, the Bookworm, and other bookstores around town had copies of it. So that was that was a, a really nice experience, and just worked out worked out well. Our editors that we had working on that, and the publication of it came out came out fine. From a process point of view. What's different for you about doing a book versus doing a regular column in a newspaper? Is it just the the sheer chunk of time needed to, to complete a book? Is it uh, do you do you change your writing style at all? How did that work out for you? I, you know, I, I kept a fairly narrative style of writing, telling the story in pretty much chronological order. Uh, I sat down with Dan Sullivan, who's our editor, and he 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 had done a few books and and decided and knew that. One of the keys was to come up with the chapters that you're going to write, the different topics. And so I, I listed all the chapters that I could have written, which was I don't know 40 or 50 things I could have written about. So and with him, we winnowed it down to probably 20 or so. Uh, and so I, I looked on each chapter as a sort of, uh, it's kind of a a big news story that you would do for say the Sunday paper, uh, you know, cover some topic about. About Warren, about his, say about his family, or when he went to college, or how he, why he came back to Omaha, and what what he told the early shareholders, how he got started, you know why why he didn't move back to Washington, New York City, where the financial center of the world is, and I would take each topic and kind of write that as a as a uh, as a news story. So really, when you look at that book, I mean it's 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 a it reads like uh, a series of newspaper articles, and as as things uh, as publication was getting near, we ran a few excerpts of a few of the chapters just to kind of let the public know what, and and there was news in in them in some of the of the things, uh, let the public know that the book is out there, and and uh, it it worked out pretty well that way. Any anything surprising emerge in your research as you were reconstructing this man and his relationship to his hometown? Did you uncover anything that you didn't know that you found to be a surprise? You know, I, I don't think I really realized that when he came back to Omaha in 1956, 
his he figured that he would retire. He had had built up a nest egg, and he figured he could build it up to the point where he wouldn't have to work anymore. And I, I'm not sure what he thought he would do. Uh, maybe teach. Maybe you know he liked to play golf, liked to play tennis, uh, be with friends, hang out with family. Uh, he really had planned to retire and just take it easy, live off of his investments, and uh, you know tweak a few things as time went by when he saw obvious bargains that were obvious to him, that sort of stuff. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, but his friends and relatives sort of persuaded him to invest their money for him, for them. And so he took on that responsibility and then word started spreading word of mouth and, and he ended up having these partnerships formed. And, and I think he, he finally uh, kind of discovered the, pri- the the fun of playing that game and, and figuring out things. It's, it's like a daily puzzle. He can figure out what's what's going to happen, try to pick the, what's going to be successful in the future and what's not. And uh, he, he, he really got into it because of his friends and family and then the friend, their friends and that sort of stuff and gradually grew into these partnerships that, that he formed. He ended up with 13 partnerships and then there was a period of time when nothing was looking good in terms of investments. He didn't think he could produce the profits that he had been producing. So he dissolved the partnerships and put his money into Berkshire Hathaway. And so he told the people, the shareholders, here's some things you can do. Here's a guy who's got an investment fund. You can invest with him. Here are some bonds that you can buy because he knew a lot of them were real conservative type investors. And uh, he told them some alternatives. And some of them said, well, what are you doing with your money? And they said, well, he said, well, I'm investing in this Berkshire Hathaway, which was a, uh, it was a, textile company that eventually went out of business, but it served as a vehicle for his investing in other things. And so a lot of them persuaded him to let them buy into Berkshire too. And that's how the the Berkshire part started. And from then on, uh, it was just a matter of uh, keeping his principles and adopting new ideas from every now and then so that uh, he would stay, stay fresh and stay uh, in the success column. I'm going to shift gears again on you now. Um, I did a little little digging, and I found this from, I believe, a column you wrote in 2017. You wrote, I don't expect readers to read every word. That's why someone invented headlines. If a, if a topic doesn't interest you, just move on. In light of what you said, I want to ask you, in today's world where readers consume news, oftentimes on the Internet where we have things called paywalls and that sort of stuff, are, are headlines now more important than ever in the sense that news services have an obligation to properly inform their readers with a headline, knowing that, you know, you, you can browse headlines, but you have to pay to click through to get the rest of the story, as opposed to in the olden days, you'd go out and you'd buy the newspaper, you could set it on your desk and read every headline, and whether or not you continued reading the story or not was up to you, but you've already paid for the product. Now it's different. You read a headline... You have to click and pay in order to get the whole story. Is that are headlines more valuable than ever before? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, they they certainly are important. I I, I think the you know the the problem is, and you've I run across this, and you've run across this, and there'll be something that says uh, you won't believe what such and such did today, and you say, well, wow, that must be really great. If it, <laughs> if it's so amazing, I won't even believe it. And then you 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 click on it, and you uh, that wasn't so hot after all. You know, I. 
you know, so people get jaded by those kind of headlines, uh, uh, clickbait stories that they that they they show something where you'll just keep clicking through the story. You know, it can be very frustrating and and misleading, and I think it damages. People need to keep or learn how to spot real news stories, real information versus uh, phony information, and it's it's very difficult. Uh, I think I think uh, we have to rely on people's intelligence to to know a difference. And I mean, this is this is what news organizations, legitimate news organizations, are still battling with. Uh, uh, you know, they used to say the newspapers were easy because they had no competition. But newspapers have always had competition for people's time. You think of the time you have is a, a certain amount, and that's it. You know, your waking hours, uh, whether you're watching TV or going to school or playing, you know, working, playing a game, whatever. Uh, newspapers always wanted that chunk of that time, and and now there's so many more things that take up the time. But I, I mean, it's just true. Headlines, headlines are very important, and uh, our online people at the World Herald will. Uh, you know, somebody puts a headline on, and they can you can sit there in real time and see how many people are reading the story, and they think, boy, that story is more important than it appears to be gathering attention. Uh, maybe a headline didn't quite hit the hit the spot that uh, would interest people, and so they'll substitute a new headline. That's something you couldn't do with a printed page. Yeah, you can reshuffle the deck can, in real you time. Can, you could put up a put up a better headline the second time around, and uh, so it's. It's certainly important, in, uh, you know, being able to write those three or four or five, six words, whatever it is that makes a headline. Uh, that's that's a, an important skill that that people need to know, and and at the same time, you don't want to be re- misleading anybody to go in and pay the the paywall thing and then be disappointed because you can you can lose readers that way, uh, you can lose your audience that way if they're they're disappointed and the story doesn't live up to what the headline says. What's your you know big picture? What's your level of optimism for the newspaper business right now? Because it's trying to find itself. It's trying to find a sustainable model that that the public will accept. How optimistic are you about the future of newspapers? Well, it's a it's it's a tough uh, business to be in. It's interesting uh, to be in this business because you know on the one hand, say the printed page printed page circulation is down. On the other hand, you have the potential for more people to read your stories than ever. Uh, you, you have a, a worldwide audience, really, if you if you look at it that way. The problem is getting people's attention from all the other things that are going on, and all the other sources. I, I think printed newspapers, it's it's going to be tough for them to survive uh, another decade or something like that. Uh, I think the 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 problem. Is that what what the end end game is going to be? Is if the print advertiser stops getting a return on his money? You know, you you have X for sale, and you put a you spend Y on the newspaper ad, and you hope to, you hope to get Z out of it. Once they stop getting the profit on the sales from those newspaper ads, uh, those print advertisements are still what pay for what pays for the newspaper to be. Printed pays for the people to gather the news, edit the news, take the pictures, develop sources, all the things that reporters do, and not only delivering the paper but uh, and doing the printing. So uh, that's the that's the model that's under scrutiny right now. Uh, the, the Salt Lake City paper has gone to a nonprofit model, 
where they can have a fundraising effort. Uh, people qualify for a tax deduction or whatever, possible tax deduction if they contribute to the paper in the name of preserving uh, the press's role in democracy. Uh, it's it's a model that's uh, possible that other newspapers will do. I'm sure there are people who are going to be watching that, that Salt Lake paper to see how they do. Uh, I mean, the World Herald, my understanding is the World Herald still makes money. Uh, Buffett turned management of the World Herald over to another company, uh, and they've done some cost-cutting, uh, considerable cost-cutting the last few years. So, but... Uh, they're, they're still making money off uh, the World Herald, and it's still profitable, and it's still a print paper. Uh, you can say the future is in the digital news, uh, but it's very hard to make enough money on a digital platform that would pay for all those salaries and pay for the, pay for the robust gathering of news that newspapers are, are known for. Uh, news organizations, on the other hand, uh, new types of news organizations are showing up and uh, I mean, I'm on the Press Club's fi- uh, foundation, which provides scholarships for uh, for journalists, and we meet the scholarship winners every year, and they are uh, gung-ho, interested, fun, uh, de- dedicated young people wanting to go into the news business, and uh, how exactly they end up doing that is probably different than it used to be, but uh, they're still out there. There's still a hunger for news uh, by the by, society, and there's still people wanting to provide it. So, y- you could have a you could have an optimistic viewpoint in terms of the people involved. Uh, the the difficulty is the economics of it, and maybe the nonprofit model is is going to succeed and and really become something, but it still remains to be seen. I by the way, uh, uh, my understanding is that Mr. Buffett is not opposed to having. Uh, a nonprofit model. If the, his newspapers were to start making, start losing money regularly, I mean, his duty to the Berkshire shareholders is to make money at the businesses that he owns or invests in, and when that stops happening, he has to do something. Uh, and I, I think a, a nonprofit model would be an option if that ever happens. That's interesting. Yeah, we'll have to see. The next decade or fifteen years are going to be, I think, very interesting for all of us to see how this shakes out. Yep, yep, and it's and the the young the young readers are the ones that uh, are going to decide this. I mean, we we run a list of our readers every day in the paper. It's called the obituaries. That's well said. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the demographic that is uh, faithful and has been faithful newspaper subscribers for their whole lives. And uh, you know, we we hope that there are new people signing up for the paper, but it's uh, it's become difficult. How about your future? What what's uh, what what's next for you? More books, perhaps, or what? What are you up to? Uh, it, yeah, I, I, I'm doing some writing. I, I joined a poetry club. I, uh, I'm taking piano lessons. Uh, you know, my wife and I are still active in uh, the music scene, uh, from a uh, small brass group that she's in to the concert band we play in. Uh, we're even in a rock and roll group, so we're staying active with that. I, I'm uh, finishing up a company history book and. Uh, Maybe doing some more things like that, uh, we'll, we'll sort of see. Uh, you know, my thought has been that uh, human beings have a certain number of words they can write, and it's it's nice to have people read what you write. Now we were we were spoiled with the newspaper because uh, you'd send it out, and every day you'd figure at least somebody's reading that stuff. And but that's not uh, you know for the average writer out there who is not working for a public regular publication. 
uh, having readership is uh, a, a luxury or a sometimes unattainable thing. It's it's tough to get people's attention these days. Uh, but you know, who knows? There may be some things worth uh, worth writing on my own, or uh, maybe just doing more of these uh, history book uh, type of things. It's a it's a good exercise to stay alert and and stay focused on things. Uh, so writing is still something I enjoy. Yeah, I think I think writing, good writing, takes a uh, a large amount of I mean intense concentration for. It might be short periods of time, but you it's hard to do if you're distracted to do well at least. Yeah, even I, I got an office set up now in my own house, so bought a new laptop. Now I'm raring to go. All right. Well, listen, Steve, I'll get you out of here at that. I appreciate your time sharing. Uh, your own story, some stories of Warren Buffett, and it's, it's been a good interview. So thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for the chance. 